Kosovo has long been a crisis waiting to happen. In a sense, it was waiting to happen since October 1912, when Serbian soldiers reoccupied Kosovo in the first Balkan War after more than 500 years of Ottoman rule. The Battle of Kosovo of 1389 was a major turning point in Serbian history, uh, but it was neither the decisive factor in destroying the medieval Serbian Empire, nor did it lead to Ottoman rule overnight. Nevertheless, the Battle of Kosovo Polje has, in the words of Noel Malcolm, become a totem or talisman of Serbian identity, so that this event has a status unlike that of anything else in the history of the Serbs. Sixty years ago, the Serbian Orthodox Bishop Emilian said at a celebration of the battle's anniversary, beside the name of Christ, no other name is more beautiful or more sacred. The capture of Kosovo by the Serbian army in 1912 may have been the culmination of a dream for the Serbs, but it was a nightmare for the Albanians. The war correspondent for the Ukrainian newspaper, Kievskaya Misil, Leon Trotsky, a man not noted for his squeamishness, professed himself shocked by the atrocities committed in that war by the Serbs and Bulgarians. In his book, The Balkan Wars, he describes the entry into Kosovo. The horrors actually began as soon as we crossed into Kosovo. Entire Albanian villages had been turned into pillars of fire. The picture was repeated the whole way to Skopje. There the Serbs broke into Turkish and Albanian houses and performed the same task in every case, plundering and killing. Edith Durham was forbidden to visit prison by the authorities because they did not wish her or the British military attaché to see the mutilations of noses and lips which had been carried out on captured Ottoman soldiers. The aim of the brutality, as the Carnegie International Commission on the Balkans found in 1914, was the entire transformation of the ethnic character of regions inhabited exclusively by Albanians. This would strengthen the Serb case, paradoxically, when the great powers met to discuss territorial changes again as they had done previously at the Congress of Berlin in 1878. The London Conference of Ambassadors in 1913 settled the boundaries of the region while satisfying nobody. The Serbs failed to get an outlet to the sea. Montenegro had to give up Scutari. Greece was forced to renounce its claim to southern Albania, while the Albanian state, which was created at the conference, <coughs> left more than half of the total Albanian population outside its borders. This unsatisfactory compromise was a result of the overriding concern of the great powers to reach a settlement which kept the powers themselves away from each other's throats. Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, who played the mediating role between Austria-Hungary and the Russians, accepted, nevertheless, that many criticisms could be raised of the border agreement by anyone who knew Albania and viewed the issue from that country's standpoint. The agreement at that conference, which headed off a major confrontation between Russia and Austria-Hungary, merely bought a few months' respite as the events of summer 1914 finally provoked the cataclysm. But the legacy of injustice and the unfairness of the frontier survives to the present day. Let me quote the bitter parting words of Isa Bolettini, the leader of the Albanian delegation to the Ambassador's Conference. 
When spring comes, we will manure the plains of Kosovo with the bones of Serbs, for we Albanians have suffered too much to forget. The Serbs' war of liberation, seen by the Albanians naturally as an act of colonization and oppression, was quickly negated by the Serb reverses in the First World War. By 1915, Serb armies were withdrawing from Kosovo in an epic and tragic march to the Adriatic, whence the survivors were embarked for Corfu and ultimately for reinsertion in the celebrated Salonika campaign. The Serbs lost an estimated 100,000 troops on the journey to the Adriatic through Kosovo and Albania. Relatively few losses could, however, be ascribed to Albanian attacks on the retreating army, although they were not averse to extorting money for free passage. Those who could not pay were left behind to die. For the remainder of the First World War, Kosovo was divided up into various occupation zones, and the Austro-Hungarian authorities promoted the opening of hundreds of Albanian language schools in a determined effort to minimize the Serb presence in the region. A month before the armistice of November 19, Serb, together with French troops, re-entered Kosovo with predictably awful results for the Albanian civilian population. In turn, guerrilla warfare against the Serbs was carried on relentlessly, both in Kosovo and in Montenegro. The peace treaties of 1919 and 20 gave no satisfaction to the Albanian population of Kosovo. Yugoslavia was recognized as a specifically Slav state, a kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. And this despite the evidence of the 1921 <coughs> census, according to which 64% of the inhabitants of Kosovo were Albanians, and over 400,000 Albanians were to be found in a Yugoslav population of 12 million. The remainder of the interwar period saw a strong focus by the Serbs on assimilation through the Serb language. Moreover, the colonization process was underpinned by successive settlement programs affording generous land allotments, building of settlements, houses, schools and churches at the expense of the Albanians. This process was complemented by the state's official encouragement to the Albanians to emigrate. A more vigorous campaign of encouraged em uh, <coughs> emigration faltered as the Second World War intervened. The German invasion and dismemberment of Yugoslavia in April 1941 led to the larger part of Kosovo being incorporated into Italian-occupied Albania the following months. The following month, the Italians played on the Albanians' desire for unification of the nation in one state, encouraging the Albanian language and allowing the flying of the Albanian flag throughout the area of Kosovo under their control. While the, the Albanians were largely collaborating with the Italians and Germans, the Serbs and Montenegrins in many cases faced the option of leaving Kosovo or being forced to labour in the mines. Partisan resistance was originally on a very small scale and eventually owed what success it had to the growing strength of the Communist Party of Albania, whose party secretary, Ember Hoxha, ruled post-war Albania with an uncompromising Marxist-Leninist rod of iron for nearly 50 years. The Yugoslav and Albanian communists eventually agreed that the question of the future borders should not be addressed during the war. The overriding priority, as Hodja put it, was that Kosovo-Albanians should fight fascism within the framework of Yugoslavia. 
In the meantime, Albanian attacks on Serbs and Montenegrins in Kosovo continued into the spring of 1944, prompting the emigration of up to 10,000 Serb and Montenegrin families, mostly to Serbia. However, by the end of November, with the withdrawal of the Germans from Greece through Kosovo, the whole of the territory was liberated by the partisans. The customary appalling score settling followed. The political chemistry between Tito and Hodja, a master servant relationship if ever there was one, took place against the background of proposals pushed forward by Tito. These proposals, presented to Stalin in Moscow by the later Yugoslav dissident Milovan Gilas, aimed at the creation of a Balkan federation to include Yugoslavia and Albania, whereby Kosovo and Albania would be united. Stalin's reaction was predictably crude. We have no special interest in Albania. We agree to Yugoslavia swallowing Albania. At this, said Gilas, he gathered together the fingers of his right hand and bringing them to his mouth, he made as if to swallow them. These proposals were effectively buried by Tito's growing split with Stalin and by Hodge's decision after the decisive rupture in 1948 to throw in his lot with Moscow. Had the Federation idea prospered, there's no doubt that Kosovo would have been part of a federal unit, a separate republic with Albania within the larger Federation. When I first visited Kosovo in early 1994 with Douglas Hogg, who was then a minister in the Foreign Office, I was struck by the warm memories still retained of Tito. His portrait could still be seen in shops, a phenomenon also found in the Sanjak and in Sarajevo. But the Tito years were very far from being a period of unqualified Yugoslav concessions to Albanian aspirations. The first two decades of communist rule were particularly tough and the dominance of Serbs and Montenegrins in the party and state security apparatus meant that the Albanians there still had very much of a, of a second-class position. The question of what status Kosovo should enjoy within Yugoslavia was also a major topic in the immediate post-war discussions by the Yugoslav Communist Party. In August 1945, legislation was passed formally creating the autonomous regions of Kosovo and Vojvodina, some saw in the attempts to subdivide large areas of Serbia the elaboration of a Titoist policy to reduce Serbia's overweening influence within Yugoslavia as a whole. The weak Serbia, strong Yugoslavia thesis was based on the Leninist doctrine for resolving nationality questions in multinational states. No other republic experienced the creation of, of autonomous regions on its territory, despite the attempts to persuade the Central Committee of the merits of creating autonomous Serb regions within Croatia and the original plan to make Bosnia an autonomous region of Serbia. In the late 1940s and 50s, the strong hand of central administration led to frequent and extensive purges of those suspected of being pro-Moscow or pro-Hodja among the ranks of the Albanian communists in Kosovo. On the other hand, the Yugoslav government kicks were matched by some kindness in the field of education and culture. There was an enormous deficit to overcome, as the 1948 census showed over 73% of Yugoslav Albanians to be illiterate. 
New Albanian language schools were opened. There was a drive to train new school teachers of whom there was a desperate shortage, and a host of cultural societies, theatres and reading rooms were set up in the early post-war years. This limited cultural flowering was not, however, extended to freedom to display the Albanian national flag. In 1956, the display of Albanian flags all over government buildings and schools led to a strong response from the security police, who stepped up the sporadic campaign to pressurize Albanians to emigrate, mostly to Turkey. Tito paid his first ever visit to Kosovo in 1967, an event which marked a significant turnaround in the authorities' attitude to Kosovo. This may have had something to do also with the death the previous year of the um, security chief and interior minister, uh, Rankovic, who was a Serb. A more favourite policy towards Albanians may have ignited some signs of affection for Tito, but it also raised national awareness, and this was fostered by a marked thaw in Yugoslav-Albanian relations in the wake of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, an event which worried both leaders. However, towards the end of that year, disappointment of the failure to secure improved autonomy, if not republican status for the region, led to major demonstrations in the course of one of which several policemen and students were seriously injured and one Albanian killed. In neighbouring Macedonia, there were calls for the Albanian areas there to join with Kosovo to form an Albanian Republic within Yugoslavia. <coughs> the measures which had been taken to improve education gradually brought an increase in the percentage of Albanians holding significant posts in the state and security structures. For the Serbs, used to being top dogs, to find that the majority of policemen were now Albanian came as a shock and became one of the key factors in the events leading to the rise of Milosevic to power. These were, however, still early days. Albanian successes in turning round the previously oppressive situation were crowned by the 1970 Constitution, which Milosevic once described in my presence to the then Foreign Secretary Malcolm Rifkin at a dinner in Belgrade as Tito's greatest mistake, the solvent which broke up Yugoslavia. The two autonomous provinces of Kosovo and Vojvodina now received, now received a status almost commensurate with the six republics. Although they continued to be part of Serbia, they were fully represented on the federal presidency and frequently took pleasure in voting with other republics against the Serb representative. Having their rights to promulgate their own constitution rather than having them promulgated for them by the Serbian assembly gave them the status of a federal unit. The theoretical reason to draw the line at republican status was the Leninist distinction between nations and nationalities. Only a nation could form a potentially state-creating unit, i.e. a republic. Nationality, having a mother state outside Yugoslavia, for example Hungary for the Hungarians of Vojvodina, and Albania for the Albanians in Kosovo and Macedonia, only aspire to being a nationality. The 1974 constitution is frequently harked back to by those who see it as the model of a modern form of autonomy, and certainly at its time it was said to be the most decentralised constitution in Europe, only, um, only over 
overtaken subsequently by the Spanish, Spanish post-Franco constitution. But while it caused substantial disquiet among the Serbs, Serbs, it aroused expectations and disappointment in equal measure among the Kosovo Albanians. In 1981, a trivial incident in the University of Pristina involving a cockroach in the soup of a student led to massive protests which quickly escalated from demands for better living conditions for students to calls for a Kosovo Republic. Yugoslavia sent in army and tanks onto the streets and security police brought in from all over the country uh, were brought in culminating in the declaration of a state of emergency. Officially, uh, according to the state media, only 10 people were killed, although locally most people put the number of dead at more than 1,000. Whatever the correct figure, hundreds of Albanians were sentenced in the trials that followed, some to a few months in prison, others up to 15 years. The classic communist purge followed, with the president of the League of Communists in Kosovo, Mahmoud Bakali, being expelled from the party presidium. A new leader was promoted, a leader of the young communi communists and a protégé of Tito, Azem Vlasi. But while the authorities concentrated on political measures to resolve the situation, the primary cause, the economic and social problem, uh, problems of Kosovo, was left unaddressed. The unemployment level was the highest in the country, and despite reforms, Serbs and Montenegrins held, held a disproportionately high percentage of jobs in the swollen public sector. Meanwhile, Serbs and Albanians continued to trade accusations and insults. In 1986, a draft memorandum drawn up by leading figures in the Serbian Academy of Sciences and Arts brought together in one document most of the Serb grievances, real and imaginary. The document, although only a draft and only released in full three years later, created a sensation when it was partially leaked in September of that year. It was quickly condemned by the Serbian president, Ivan Stambolic, and the head of the Belgrade Party Committee. Although the Serbian Party Central Committee also condemned the document, no public denunciation was issued at the insistence of the General Secretary of the Serbian League of Communists, one Slobodan Milosevic. The memorandum is widely credited with being the starting point of the rebirth of Serbian nationalism. It was, in fact, nothing of the sort. If the memorandum had never existed, it is highly unlikely that events would have developed differently. Nor did it exist in isolation. Academics and intellectuals on both sides were regularly putting forward ideas and opinions which were inflaming the already fragile situation. Indeed, earlier that year, 216 leading academics had presented a petition to the Yugoslav Assembly complaining of the, quotes, genocide to which the Serbs in Kosovo were subjected. When some six months after the leak of the memorandum, the more militant Kosovo Serbs asked Stambolic to address them in the town of Kosovo Polje, a stone's throw from the site of the famous battle, Stambolic fatally ducked out and sent his trusted protégé Milosevic instead. The rest, as they say, is history. Having politically defenestrated his patron, Stambolic, Milosevic moved quickly to strengthen his position nation nationally. 
firstly by bringing the two autonomous provinces under tight Serbian control. He organized a series of protests and demonstrations using the Committee for the Protection of Kosovo, Serbs and Montenegrins as his stalking horse. Within less than a year, there had been close to 100 demonstrations involving around 5 million people. In December 1988, Milosevic addressed nearly 1 million supporters in Belgrade, calling for the ending of Albanian terror in Kosovo and the continuation of his reform process. Milosevic at this stage liked to cloak his nationalist program with the respectable veneer of an anti-bureaucratic revolution. At the same time, Milosevic removed from the Kosovo leadership his main Albanian <coughs> adversary, Azim Vlasi, and substituted a stooge, riding out the inevitable demonstrations and banning further ones. When the ban was flouted, the continuing strikes and protests gave Milosevic the excuse to introduce emergency measures and to arrest Vlasi, who was accused of criminal acts. Under the threat and intimidation of Serbian arms and tanks, the Provincial Assembly of Kosovo voted in March 1989 to accept constitutional amendments which considerably reduced the status and powers of the autonomous provinces. Milosevic was careful to ensure, however, that the provinces still retained their separate and quasi-republican status at federal level, thus allowing Milosevic, through his placemen, now installed in Kosovo, Vojvodina, and in the Republic of Montenegro, to control with the Serbs, with the Serbian vote, half of the eight seats on the federal presidency. While Milosevic was thus engaged in a centripetal strategy to bring all the republics gradually under his control, his policies were weakening the only genuine central political body, the federal government, and convincing the leaders of the other republics, some of whom needed no persuasion, that faced with Milosevic's bullying and strong-arm tactics, they had no future in Yugoslavia. So it was Milosevic himself who sprinkled fertilizer on the seeds of secession, which in Slovenia and Croatia had already been home-sown. The next few years saw a return to the colonialist policies of the post-First World War era, with renewed attempts made at enforced emigration, the enactment of property laws which discriminated against Albanians, and the dismissal of the vast majority of Albanians working in the state sector. When the Serbian parliament finally dissolved the Kosovo Assembly and its government in July 1989, the Albanians responded by proclaiming a Republic of Kosovo and in 1990 held an underground referendum in which 99% of those who voted were said to have declared themselves in favour of a sovereign independent Kosovo. In December 1989, the LDK, the Democratic League of Kosovo, was formed, electing the president of the Association of Albanian Writers, Dr. Ibrahim Rukova, as its leader. More of a movement than a party, the LDK and Rukova, thereafter became the dominant forces in Albanian political life in Kosovo. Rukova, who was frequently dubbed the Kosovo Gandhi and wore a trademark scarf around his neck on all public occasions, sought to follow Gandhi's principle of peaceful resistance to the relentless Serb oppression. He sought at the same time to use every opportunity to internationalize the Kosovo issue and to resist the international community's insistence that even with 
the breakup of the old Yugoslavia, the SFRY, Kosovo should remain part of Serbia and consequently of the new Yugoslavia. I met Rugova many times over my four years in Yugoslavia. The conversations tended to be circular and repetitive. Rugova would describe how bad the repression currently was and give me graphic illustrations. He would then ask for international help and recognition of the independence of Kosovo, perhaps as a first step going through the transitional process of UN trusteeship. I would praise Rugova's restraint in the face of huge provocation, but urge him as a good democrat to take part in normal political life. The LDK and other Albanian parties would be able to exercise considerable influence in local republican and federal governments if they took part in the elections. Rugova would then explain that to take part in elections would compromise his rigid position on non-recognition of the Serbian state. Nevertheless, Rugova was always exceptionally friendly and warm. Kisses were invariably exchanged. We spoke in French as he did not wish to speak in Serbo-Croat. We usually spent some time meeting on our own. After an hour or so, we would repair to his favourite restaurant, where his arrival was treated like a state visit. The guests and the staff would get to their feet as Rukova entered. He claimed that his security people insisted he sat in the same seat with his back to an outside wall. It was never clear to me whether this was on grounds of physical security, to thwart any attempt at physical attack or assassination, or of technical security to prevent the bugging of his conversations. If the former, uh, my own limited contact with security people suggested that best practice would to take, dictate that he should move seats rather than occupy a fixed regular position. But on one occasion we had the clearest evidence that the restaurant was bugged. After a discussion at lunch over the exclusion of Albanians from sports facilities, we set off to visit a sports stadium run by the Serb authorities. Remarkably, when we got there, two of the first three practitioners in the stadium we were in, introduced to claimed to be Albanians. One looked suspiciously like a Serb to me. <laughs> there was something touchingly dignified about Rugova's determination to avoid violence and his patient belief in the validity of his own strategy. I didn't share his confidence in its wisdom. I believed he was being too passive and should have taken more risks, taking initiatives in proposing dialogue with the Serbs, preferably without preconditions, but on the understanding, nego negotiated if necessary by a third party, that if he agreed to face-to-face -face talks, there should be an amnesty for those convicted of political offences. Conversations with Milosevic on Kosovo were equally unproductive. Not your affair, keep your nose out of it, would be a polite summary. I was able to see it firsthand with Lord Owen and Thorvald Stoltenberg, who were respectively the EU and UN negotiators on Yugoslavia in early 1995, how neuralgic a topic it was for Milosevic. As another path to um, dialogue, I called in Rome on Monsignor Paglia of the Sant'Egidio community, a lay Catholic organisation who had been active in helping to bring some of the most intractable African civil wars to an end. Paglia was now involved in secret negotiations on a rapprochement between Serbs and Albanians in the field of education. Milosevic described him to me once as the Pope's Kissinger. 
is indeed a remarkable figure who had already worked extensively on Albanian questions. I kept in touch regularly with him, offering advice and support as necessary and transmitting messages occasionally to the players. Eventually, his efforts culminated in the signature of what at the time seemed a groundbreaking education agreement <coughs> between Milosevic and Rugova in September 1996. At the time, I urged Milosevic to move quickly to implement the agreement. Procedural problems, which were at root political, held up matters for many months and highlighted the way that Milosevic was most anxious to keep third parties out of negotiations, while the Albanians, ever distrustful of the Serbs, were equally determined to ensure that talks took place in the presence of a third party. By the time I left Belgrade, after four years, the international community was still attempting to head off violent confrontation between the increasingly radicalised Albanian students and the Serb police, while lending its full support to Monsignor Paglia's attempts to breathe life into the education agreement. Some of my last days in Yugoslavia were spent in Pristina, working on this apparently intractable problem with other colleagues. Why, after so many years of uneasy standoff, a stalemate between Serbian muscle and Al Albanian numbers, which maintained a fragile stability, did the undeclared truce finally collapse? Was the outbreak of violence, prompted by the increasingly frequent Kosovo Liberation Army attacks on Serb security officials and Al Albanian collaborators, and met with the customary Serb overreaction and indiscriminate attacks on civilians and their property inevitable? I reminded London at the time of Milosevic's tendency as the high priest of chaos and conflict to stir up trouble in one area when he was faced with difficulties and reverses in another. It struck me that there was a moment of considerable danger during the street demonstrations in Belgrade of the winter of 1996-97 when the combustible situation in Kosovo could have gone critical. But Milosevic was never given a clear opening as the Kosovar Albanians were prudently restrained and realistic enough to know that the opposition in Serbia were unlikely to achieve power, and if they, even if they had have done, they were unlikely to make the sort of major concessions to Kosovar aspirations which would have satisfied them. Indeed, we have seen with the present Serbian government that they can be as unbending as Milosevic in principle, if considerably more flex flexible over practicalities. There are, I believe, three reasons why the fuse finally burnt down. After the Dayton Peace Conference on Bosnia, there was a sense of disappointment, almost disbelief among the Kosovar Albanians that their grievances were not being addressed. This was compounded by the recognition of the borders of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia by most members of the international community in early 1996. The Albanians asked repeatedly why they should be the only prisoners left in the remnants of the old Yugoslav state. If even the Slavs couldn't live together, and the Slovenes, Croats, Macedonians, and Bosnian Muslims had all been granted their exit visas from the old SFRY, why should the Albanians, who were not Slavs, be forced to remain in a loveless marriage with the Serbs, their particularly hated nemesis? A third factor was the failure to implement the education agreement concluded in September 1996. The rise 
in my view, of the Kosovo Liberation Army can be traced to these factors and against a background of frustration and impatience with the Gandhi-esque policies of their political leaders, which had brought them little in the way of concrete results. This brings us to the hot period of the Kosovo crisis from the end of 1997 to the NATO bombing campaign of spring-summer 1999. The situation deteriorated throughout 97 and early 98 with increasing attacks by the KLA on Serb security forces and suspected Albanian collaborators. That <coughs> spring saw some vicious Serb overreaction, which played into the KLA's hands and led Western politicians like Tony Blair to ask his officials how we could help the KLA. It was at this time while I was uh, on a sabbatical at St. Anthony's College here, that I was sent back to Belgrade, having left the previous November as the Foreign Secretary's secret emissary. I was back in Belgrade with little enthusiasm and certainly no optimism. Clouds over Kosovo had darkened further in those few months I'd been away. I met Milosevic for three hours, when I expressed strong concern both at the recent violence in Kosovo and the threat which Kosovo posed to regional peace and security, Milosevic replied testily that any country faced with a terrorist threat would have reacted the same way. Recent police operations had been exaggerated beyond belief. What I said about the civilians? Some claim Milosevic had been killed by the terrorists themselves. I said that this stretched credibility to its limits. But where errors or excesses, he said, had been committed by the secret security authorities, these were now under investigation, just as we were now investigating the events of Bloody Sunday. Milosevic continued to express his amazement at the international community's double standards. The special forces had reacted to a terrorist threat and had pulled out within two and a half days. I said that this contradicted everything I'd heard and that our own representatives, foreign observers and journalists had seen. I put it to him that this was a problem which had to be solved politically, not by violent suppression of violence. On the question of international mediation, I maintained that the climate created by recent events had raised the level of distrust to the point where it was wholly unrealistic to expect to make progress without outside help. I mentioned the example in Northern Ireland of the Mitchell Commission we were not too proud to accept outside help. Milosevic was not impressed. We were a powerful country with a veto at the Security Council. Nevertheless, he said, we would not permit the dismemberment of our country to be imposed upon us by a Security Council resolution. I said nobody was proposing that. Repeated contact group statements had spoken of the territorial integrity of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. Milosevic countered that recent public statements by U the U.S. representative for the Balkans had made it clear that the U.S. agenda was different. He quoted to me, the phrase, Serbia is not an adequate framework for Kosovo. This, he said, encouraged the Albanians in the direction of Kosovo as a third republic within the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia as a holding operation on the way to independence. I said the international community had never excluded any option which the parties freely negotiated among themselves, but equally I'd never seen any suggestion that the international community itself was preparing an independence option. On the con contrary, 
every international gathering made specifically clear that that option was not supported. Milosevic said the borders of Serbia and Albania had been confirmed at the London Conference in 1913 and guaranteed by the UK among others. I reported back to Robin Cook with my conclusions. The, perbs, the Serbs, I said, found themselves in a familiar position, excoriated on all sides for their excesses and egregiously awful behaviour, threatened with sanctions and subjected to international pressure. They nevertheless believed that they were in the right, exposed to the West's familiar double standards and hidden agenda of secession for Kosovo. While Kosovo as a third republic within Yugoslavia could look to outsiders an acceptable compromise, it looked to Serbs like the antechamber to independence. Although Milosevic did not say as much, I was sure that what was preying on his mind was that the Europeans accepted that republican borders could become international borders for those republic, republics which fulfilled its criteria and wished for independence. Having granted Kosovo republican status, it would be impossible to deny it the right to self-determination and subsequently independence enjoyed by the former, former SFRY republics. The Albanians, like the Bosnian Muslims before them, had earned themselves the title of victims. The terrorist activity of the Kosovo Liberation Army, the so the US, the United States had called it initially, had been comprehensively overshadowed by the massive Serb overreaction against innocent civilians and their villages. At a stroke, the Kosovo problem had been internationalized. It was a high price for the victims and their families, but one which I judged the Albanians would regard as worth paying. Whether we were unintentionally trailing an independence code before them was not for me to judge, but Serbia's leaders thought sincerely, I believe, that we were. If the Albanians themselves believed that too, there was no incentive for them to settle for less. In those gloomy circumstances, I saw no alternative to continuing patiently to work at promoting a dialogue without preconditions on either side, and perhaps trying to bring Rugova and Milosevic together in secret. Even if a summit meeting were to be achieved, I concluded, direct dialogue between parties was unlikely to succeed for all the obvious reasons that both sides lack the necessary imagination, political sophistication and common sense to make the appropriate concessions. I returned to Oxford and silence for another three months. Again, I was asked to return to see Milosevic privately. The situation had deteriorated further and the US were warning of a bombing campaign if Serb troops were not withdrawn from the province. Milosevic painted a typically one-sided picture of the situation in Kosovo. Guns were endemic in the area. Security situation would be fine if the KLA had not been encouraged by outside forces who wanted to see an independent Kosovo. I said I didn't know which outside forces he was referring to. It was the situation on the ground which was creating a new dynamic. A third of the territory of Kosovo was no longer under Serb control and this percentage was growing. Milosevic said the only way forward was through dialogue. If he wished, he could reverse the position on the ground in a week, leaving no KLA fighters. I said that would just bring international condemnation and it would lead inevitably to the use of force against him by the international community. 
Moreover, many more recruits would come forward to fill the ranks of those eliminated. The problem had to be solved politically. Milosevic said that he would negotiate with Rukova, but not with terrorists. I reminded him that Tony Blair had shaken hands with Jerry Adams. But, said Milosevic, he was a political leader. I said that Jerry Adams had previously been the chief of staff of the provisional IRA. It was never comfortable to negotiate with men who had blood on their hands, but sometimes it was essential to ensure peace. He missed the point. On possible models for autonomy, Milosevic said that he was working on a plan, but there was no point in showing it to the Albanians at this stage, as they would simply denounce it as inadequate. His guiding principle was equality. Albanians should have the same rights, no more, no less, than the Serbs in Kosovo. I said that this was acceptable as a proposition, provided the Albanians, as a clear majority, had the right to take key decisions in matters appropriate for local self-rule. Milosevic said he envisaged three houses, one for the Albanians, one for Serbs and Montenegrins, and one for Turks, Gypsies, and other Kosovo minorities. Each house would decide on matters impinging only on their community. At one stage, Milosevic referred to the Kosovars having a special status in the upper house of the federal parliament on a par with the Montenegrins. I said that the three houses' structure seemed cumbersome and unlikely to recommend itself to the Albanians unless their overwhelming population advantage was reflected in the relative weight of the houses. On reflection, this looked like an elaborate way to ensure that the Serb minority could block decisions they were unhappy with. After some description of, by, <coughs> by Milosevic of the care his authorities had taken to avoid civilian casualties, I said that we appeared to be operating off two different scripts. I handed him my script, a list of incidents involving excessive use of force, covering the month of June 1998 only. He read it in total silence. I continued that he seemed to be badly informed by his interior ministry. If true, he should welcome effective international monitoring. We had a further circular discussion uh, about foreign intervention. As the situation calmed down so he could withdraw his security forces from Kosovo, but he had to take the first step. Without withdrawal of forces, Rugova and his negotiators would not have the necessary political cover. Milosevic asked who was going to protect the Serbs if he withdraw, withdrew. Already many had been killed by snipers and over 50 kidnapped. I said we didn't expect him to leave the Serbs defenseless, but the security forces involved in excessive use of force should be withdrawn. He then went on to refer to the NATO threats, which he said were encouraging the KLA to believe that NATO would do its job for them. I said, that the threat, I said the threat was very real and was still out there, but its aim was not to tilt the playing field in the KLA's direction, but to prevent a humanitarian refugee catastrophe. The international community did not support independence, but it was increasingly clear that international involvement was going to be necessary to bring about an agreement and to implement it. Having left Milosevic in his palace, I went to have lunch with the Serbian president, Milutinovic. Milutinovic was frank, and what he said would have been treasonable to Milosevic's ears. He favoured partition as a solu solution to the Kosovo problem. The difficulty, as he saw it, was how to draw the map, 
There were over 1,080 Orthodox monasteries and churches in Kosovo. He failed to mention the substantial mineral deposits and coal mines. I asked whether Milosevic said, shared his view. Not surprisingly, he didn't. I again returned to Oxford. But the situation drifted on downwards. Milosevic eventually allowed a mission from the OSCE to Kosovo. But after a massacre at Racek of some 40 Albanians in January 1999, after some Serb soldiers were killed the previous week, the international community moved to convene one of the most bizarre international conferences, that of Rondouillet. In the end, on the 18th of March 1999, the Albanian, American and British delegation signed what became known as the Rondouillet Accords. The Serbs and the Russians refused to have anything to do with it. The Accords called for NATO administration of Kosovo as an autonomous province within Yugoslavia a force of 30,000 NATO troops to maintain order, and an unhindered right of passage for NATO troops on Yugoslav territory, including Kosovo, and immunity for NATO and its agents to Yugoslav law. The American and British delegations must have known that the new version, particularly of the military annex, would never be accepted by the Serbs. When they refused to accept it, a NATO bombing campaign which lasted from March to June began. After nearly three months of bombing, Milosevic finally accepted a Finno-Russian peace plan which involved the withdrawal of Yugoslav forces and the, the arrival of UN, uh, UN presence and NATO forces. <coughs> Within days, the Security Council passed a resolution 1244 placing Kosovo under the transitional UN administration UNMIC and authorised K4, a NATO-led peacekeeping force. This resolution provided that Kosovo would have autonomy within the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and affirmed Yugoslavia's territorial integrity. Some 200 to 280,000 um, Serbs left when the Serbian forces left was also some looting of Serb properties. The current number of internally displaced persons is disputed with estimates ranging from 65,000 to a quarter of a million. At the moment it's probable that around 120 to 150,000 Serbs remain in Kosovo. In March 2004 Kosovo experienced its worst inter-ethnic violence since the Kosovo War series of minor events soon developed into large-scale riots, resulting in the deaths of around 30 Serbs and the burning of houses, churches and monasteries. This seriously disturbed the Western members of the international community who decided that the status quo was unsustainable. International negotiations began in February 2006 to determine the final status of Kosovo as envisaged under uh, Security Council Resolution 1244. They were led by UN Special Envoy Marti Artisari. While, but while progress was made on technical matters, both parties remained light years apart on the question of status itself. In February last year, Artisari delivered a draft <coughs> status settlement proposal <coughs> to leaders in Belgrade and Pristina, which proposed 
so supervised independence for the province. After many weeks of discussion at the UN, the Western members of the Security, Security Council formally abandoned a draft resolution backing Artisari's proposal, having failed to secure Russian backing. So in August, a troika consisting of negotiators from the European Union, the US and Russia launched a last effort to reach a status outcome acceptable to both Belgrade and Pristina. These talks failed at the end of last year. To be brutally frank, it was entirely predictable that these talks should have ended with no agreement reached, when the Kosovar Albanians had already been told before the talks started that their position on independence was being supported by the US and the EU. When President Bush visited Albania a year ago this month, he told an enthusiastic crowd, perhaps the most enthusiastic he has encountered outside the US for many years, that Kosovo should be independent. By thus removing any incentive for the Kosovo Albanians to compromise on their independence stance, the US fatally undermined the negotiations before they began. In fact, Bush intervention was more like an echo of General de Gaulle's infamous visit to Quebec 40 years ago and his call, Vive le Québec libre, with the difference that de Gaulle was promptly asked to leave the country <laughs> while President Bush was garlanded. <coughs> but both were irresponsible. <sighs> Given the impasse we've now reached, where the West is mainly committed to supporting Albanian or Kosovo-Albanian independence and Russia equally committed to blocking any agreement in the Security Council which would see independence recognized and accepted by the UN, it may be timely to look at imaginative exit strategies, however uncomfortable they are for both sides and unwelcome to the international community. The West is fond of the mantra that the status quo was not sustainable. What they really meant was that Kosovar Albanian expectations of independence had been raised to such <coughs> an extreme that any frustration of independence beyond earlier this year might have led to violence against the NATO forces. Kosovo independence, as we know, was proclaimed in February this year and has been recognized by the US and most of the EU but not, of course, by Russia, China, nor indeed Spain, who fear the knock-on effects in the Basque country and Catalonia. I happen to agree that Kosovo should become independent, but not within its present borders. Within the negotiating process, one of the excluded options self-imposed by the international community was that Kosovo should not be partitioned. It is hard to understand the intellectual underpinning of this policy, when the old Yugoslavia has been progressively partitioned and when Kosovo's independence is itself a partition of Serbia. The unstated concern is clearly that the partition of Kosovo could lead to pressure for a partitioning of Bosnia, a proposition which the international community themselves in incidentally accepted and later retracted during the earlier stages of the negotiations on HMS Invincible to bring the war in Bosnia to an end. Again, the Kosovar Albanians have been told that they are not allowed to unite with Albania. This is patently absurd, as if two independent countries freely wish to unite and do not destabilize their neighbors in doing so. There's no justifiable reason why they should be prevented from going ahead. 
The reality is that whatever the pious hopes of the West and its diplomats, that multi-ethnicity has failed in Kosovo, but the determination to deny the failure has led to particularly incoherent policies by the West, pushing for more centralization in Bosnia to weaken the Bosnian Serb entity for the benefit of the Bosnian central government, while going in the other direction in Kosovo to the point of secession. As we found in Northern Ireland, where intercommunal violence has been endemic, it sometimes becomes necessary to erect fences to keep neighbors from each other's throats. Indeed, nearly 10 years after the Good Friday Agreement, there are now more peace walls in Belfast than ever. And as the West's aspirations for tolerance in multi-ethnicity in Kosovo have proved to be so much empty rhetoric, a lot of the Serbs in Kosovo is at least as wretched as that of the Albanians in Kosovo pre-1999, we need to impose a solution which offers security to both communities, and that requires the partition of Kosovo. Not easy, but the least worst of the current options. This need not be a permanent solution. In time, if the two communities can reopen a dialogue based on a common feeling of security, there is a chance that having lived separately, they will manage in time to come closer together in the wider context of EU membership. At that stage, borders can become marks of distinction rather than division, in the words of Hubert Butler, and eventually drop off like used sticking plaster. Partition of Kosovo will please neither side, but the equality of pain is more likely to lead to stability than the present uh, policies, which have undoubtedly destabilized Serbia and through Serbia the whole region. It's hard to explain to Serbs why, when Milosevic was still in power, a settlement was imposed which left Kosovo legally and formally part of Serbia. But having overthrown Milosevic by their own efforts, and lived according to the rules of the international community for the last seven years, the Serbs now see themselves punished by losing nearly 20% of their territory. Whatever government is formed in Serbia after the recent elections is going to have to deal with the Kosovo issue. One of the legacies of the outgoing Prime Minister, Kostunica, has been to set the bar impossibly high for any Serb politician wishing to forget about Kosovo and move on. In this respect, the US and the EU completely failed to anticipate the extent to which Kostunica has managed to sensitize and indeed radicalize political and public opinion in Serbia. No politician can seriously expect to tiptoe away from Kosovo. A new government will be politically bound to defend Serb interests in Kosovo and to encourage what has already emerged as a form of de facto partition there. The writ of the government in the Kosovo capital of Pristina does not run north of the Ibar River, where about 40% of the Serbs live, in an area which is immediately contiguous to the rest of Serbia. Were the government in Pristina to succeed in forcing their institutions on the Serb minority, this would almost certainly result in a mass exodus of the remaining Serbs from Kosovo, and the final end of the international community's cherished hopes for a multi-ethnic Kosovo. The major EU players and the US have only themselves to blame for failing to read the situation correctly and believing that a pro-Western government could be brought to terms with the loss of Kosovo by the prospect of EU membership. This is wishful thinking on a grand scale. They should instead turn their attention to the sort of partition I have mentioned, perhaps on the Bosnian model, and in the longer term to de-dramatise borders.
and so that with Serbia and Kosovo within the European Union, the significance of these borders can be min minimized. Traveling over much of continental European Union these days is to experience Ernest Bevin's dream to go down to Victoria Station, get a railway ticket, and go where the hell I like without a passport or anything else. There was a recent past when the whole of the former Yugoslavia had that quality. You could travel from Slovenia in the north to Macedonia and Kosovo in the south without ever producing a passport. Now that single space is composed of seven states and seven sets of border crossing posts. Only when Bevan's dream is realized again in the Balkans will that region enjoy real stability. Without a permanent settlement which doesn't leave the key regional player, Serbia, with a sense of grievance and loss, the present piecemeal solutions cobbled out of the former Yugoslavia reminds us still more of another of Bevin's quotes. If you open that Pandora's box, you never know what Trojan horses will jump out.